I'm Robert Sheehan, and this is Wild Stories, an artistic celebration and exploration of the work and life of Oscar Wilde through his fairy tales, The Happy Prince, and other stories. For me, it started as a child when Santa Claus brought me a book of collected stories, and one of those stories was The Selfish Giant. I read it and fell in love with it. The Happy Prince was my favourite when I was young. I think his stories are beautiful, but they're tinged with sadness and they always have a sort of an undercurrent of darkness. It seems to me that Oscar is almost a sort of prototype Roald Dahl in the sense that there is some wonderful subversiveness in these stories. The Nightingale and the Rose, I think, is one of the most disturbing of the fairy tales. I think The Devoted Friend is a deeply black piece of humour. There are very funny lines all the way through the five stories. For many of us, these are the fairy tales of Oscar Wilde that we grew up with. Perhaps hearing them as bedtime stories, The Happy Prince, The Devoted Friend, The Remarkable Rocket, The Nightingale and the Rose, and The Selfish Giant. Let me tell you a story on the subject, said the linnet. Is the story about me? asked the water rat. If so, I will listen to it, for I am extremely fond of fiction. My own garden is, is my own garden, said the giant. Anyone can understand that, and I will allow nobody to play in it. They seem familiar to us, beautiful, accessible and innocent, full of images of gardens and birds. Death is a great price to pay for a red rose, cried the nightingale, and life is very what he had seen. I am covered with fine gold, said the prince. You must take it off, leaf by leaf, and think give it that to my If you say the same thing over and over a great many times, it becomes true in the end. Yet within this small collection of children's stories, there is a window to Wilde's life. For beyond their sweetness and simplicity is a darkness, a wit, the bite of Wilde's voice and his artistic vision, through the prism of these five fairy tales, we can see all the colours of Oscar Wilde reflected. I think it's fascinating that they can be taken really on two levels. You can read them as beautiful children's stories, and lots of people did see them as very firmly aimed at children. The stories themselves, I think, are the end of one period and the beginning of another. It's the beginning of a very dark period. It's the period in which he's looking at life and his own life, if you like, as the inevitability of some Greek tragedy. There are so many references to myths and tales and legends from ancient Greece and from Rome and from all over the world that find their way into his stories. They can just be read on so many different levels. There's so much symbolism in them. They have so much resonance, I think, for any reader of any age. That's Eleanor Fitzsimons, the author of a new biography of Wilde and Oscar Wilde's grandson, Merlin Holland, on the stories. We'll hear more from them in the series, along with Anne Markey and Jarlith Killeen from Trinity College Dublin, who have both researched Wilde's work. So in Wilde's stories, we're exploring Oscar Wilde through that first collection of fairy tales, The Happy Prince and Other Stories. They were published in 1888 when he was in his mid-thirties, a celebrated wit in London, a married man with two infant sons, but not long after he had begun a love affair with a young man called Robbie Ross, and just before he wrote his dark gothic novel of a double life, The Picture of Dorian Gray. 
So in each episode of Wild Stories, we'll bring you a reading of one of the stories read by actors Lauren Coe, Brian Gleeson and myself, and we'll discover more about Wild through the lens of those stories. But Wild Stories goes beyond words. We've invited two artists, composer Michael Gallen and visual artist Felicity Clear, to reimagine Wild. That evocative music you're hearing is part of Michael's composition, a suite of music inspired by the five tales, which has been beautifully performed and recorded for us by the RTE Concert Orchestra and RTE's Cornanogue. And while this is radio, you can experience Felicity Clear's intriguing animations, which flow in tandem with Michael's music, on the project's website, wildstories.ie. At every single moment of one's life, Wild wrote, one is what one is going to be, no less than what one has been. He wrote this as part of a deeply moving long letter, his prison letter now known as De Profundis, in the spring of 1897, just nine years after the fairy tales were published. I now see that sorrow, being the supreme emotion of which man is capable, is at once the type and test of all great art, he wrote in jail. By then, his once glittering life was shattered, his name disgraced and his family torn apart. Pain, unlike pleasure, wears no mask, he wrote. There are times when sorrow seems to me to be the only truth. Wilde wrote De Profundis in the final months of a two-year prison term. He'd been sentenced with hard labour, but his health had broken and the prison governor granted him one single sheet of paper a day to write. Across three months, he began a bitter letter to his lover, Bosey, Lord Alfred Douglas. Douglas was a beautiful but often callous young man who had abandoned Wilde during the prison term. It had been accusations by Douglas's father, the Marquis of Queensbury, that had led to Wilde's failed libel case and his conviction for crimes of gross indecency with other men. But De Profundis became much more than an angry love letter. As the days passed, Wilde shaped out of his own personal suffering a critical monologue on his life's art, and he returned to those early fairy tales, and the story he suggested foreshadows his life, The Happy Prince. I wanted to eat of the fruit of all the trees in the garden of the world, he says of his former life and his greed for pleasure. My only mistake was that I confined myself so exclusively to the trees of what seemed to me the sunlit side of the garden, and shunned the other side for its shadow and its gloom the other half of the garden had its secrets for me also. In Wilde's De Profundis, man's soul and man's art needs both the pleasure and the suffering of life to reach completion. If the world has indeed been built of sorrow, Oscar wrote, it has been built by the hands of love. That idea, he says, is foreshadowed, even without him knowing it, through his work, beginning with the Happy Prince.
So let's hear Oscar Wilde and that story he returned to in the solitude of prison, The Happy Prince. High above the city, on a tall column, stood the statue of the Happy Prince. He was gilded all over with thin leaves of fine gold. For eyes, he had two bright sapphires, and a large red ruby glowed on his sword hilt. He was very much admired indeed. He is as beautiful as a weathercock, remarked one of the town councillors, who wished to gain a reputation for having artistic tastes, only not quite so useful, he added, fearing lest people should think him unpractical, which he really was not. Why can't you be like the happy prince? asked a sensible mother of her little boy, who was crying for the moon. The happy prince never dreams of crying for anything. I am glad there is someone in the world who is quite happy, muttered a disappointed man as he gazed at the wonderful statue. He looks just like an angel, said the charity children as they came out of the cathedral in their bright scarlet cloaks and their clean white pinafores. How do you know, said the mathematical master, you have never seen one. Ah, but we have, in our dreams, answered the children, and the mathematical master frowned and looked very severe, for he did not approve of children dreaming. One night, there flew over the city a little swallow. His friends had gone away to Egypt six weeks before, but he had stayed behind, for he was in love with the most beautiful reed. He had met her early in the spring, as he was flying down the river after a big yellow moth, and had been so attracted by her slender waist that he had stopped to talk to her. Shall I love you? said the swallow, who liked to come to the point at once, and the reed made him a low bow. So he flew round and round her, touching the water with his wings and making silver ripples. This was his courtship, and it lasted all through the summer. It is a ridiculous attachment, twittered the other swallows. She has no money and far too many relations. And indeed the river was quite full of reeds. Then when the autumn came, they all flew away. After they had gone, he felt lonely and began to tire of his lady love. She has no conversation, he said, and I am afraid that she is a coquette, for she is always flirting with the wind. And certainly, whenever the wind blew, the reed made the most graceful curtsies. I admit that she is domestic, he continued, but I love traveling, and my wife, consequently, should love traveling also. Will you come away with me? He said finally to her, but the reed shook her head. She was so attached to her home. You have been trifling with me, he cried. I am off to the pyramids. Goodbye. And he flew away. All day long he flew, and at nighttime he arrived at the city. Where shall I put up, he said. I hope the town has made preparations. Then he saw the statue on the tall column. I will put up there, he cried. It is a fine position with plenty of fresh air. So he alighted just between the feet of the happy prince. I have a golden bedroom, 
he said softly to himself as he looked round and he prepared to go to sleep. But just as he was putting his head under his wing, a large drop of water fell on him. What a curious thing, he cried. There is not a single cloud in the sky. The stars are quite clear and bright, and yet it is raining. The climate in the north of Europe is really dreadful. The reed used to like the rain, but that was merely her selfishness. Then another drop fell. What is the use of a statue if it cannot keep the rain off, he said. I must look for a good chimney pot, and he determined to fly away. But before he had opened his wings, a third drop fell, and he looked up and saw, ah, what did he see? The eyes of the happy prince were filled with tears, and tears were running down his golden cheeks. His face was so beautiful in the moonlight that the little swallow was filled with pity. Who are you? he said. I am the happy prince. Why are you weeping then? asked the swallow. You have quite drenched me. When I was alive and had a human heart, answered the statue, I did not know what tears were, for I lived in the palace of Sanssouci, where sorrow is not allowed to enter. In the daytime I played with my companions in the garden, and in the evening I led the dance in the great hall. Round the garden ran a very lofty wall, but I never cared to ask what lay beyond it. Everything about me was so beautiful. My courtiers called me the happy prince, and happy indeed I was, if pleasure be happiness. So I lived, and so I died. And now that I am dead, they have set me up here so high that I can see all the ugliness and all the misery of my city. And though my heart is made of lead, yet I cannot choose but weep. What? Is he not solid gold? said the swallow to himself. He was too polite to make any personal remarks out loud. Far away, continued the statue in a low musical voice, far away in a little street there is a poor house. One of the windows is open, and through it I can see a woman seated at a table. Her face is thin and worn, and she has coarse red hands, all pricked by the needle, for she is a seamstress. She is embroidering passion flowers on a satin gown for the loveliest of the queen's maids of honor to wear at the next court ball. In a bed in the corner of the room, her little boy is lying ill. He has a fever and is asking for oranges. His mother has nothing to give him but river water, so he is crying. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, will you not bring her the ruby out of my sword hilt? My feet are fastened to this pedestal and I cannot move. I am waited for in Egypt, said the swallow. My friends are flying up and down the Nile and talking to the large lotus flowers. Soon they will go to sleep in the tomb of the great king. The king is there himself in his painted coffin. He is wrapped in yellow linen and embalmed with spices. Round his neck is a chain of pale green jade and his hands are like withered leaves. Swallow, swallow, little swallow said the prince. Will you not stay with me for one night and be my messenger? The boy is so thirsty and his mother so sad. I don't think I like boys, answered the swallow. Last summer, when I was staying on the river, there were two rude boys, the miller's sons, who were always throwing stones at me. 
They never hit me, of course. We swallows fly far too well for that. And besides, I come of a family famous for its agility. But still, it was a mark of disrespect. But the happy prince looked so sad that the little swallow was sorry. It is very cold here, he said, but I will stay with you for one night and be your messenger. Thank you, little swallow, said the prince. So the swallow picked out the great ruby from the prince's sword and flew away with it in his beak over the roofs of the town. He passed by the cathedral tower where the white marble angels were sculptured. He passed by the palace and heard the sound of dancing. A beautiful girl came out on the balcony with her lover. How wonderful the stars are, he said to her, and how wonderful is the power of love. Oh, I hope my dress will be ready in time for the state ball, she answered. I have ordered passion flowers to be embroidered on it, but the seamstresses are so lazy. He passed over the river and saw the lanterns hanging to the masts of the ships. He passed over the ghetto and saw the old Jews bargaining with each other and weighing out money in copper scales. At last, he came to the poor house and looked in. The boy was tossing feverishly on his bed and the mother had fallen asleep. She was so tired. In he hopped and laid the great ruby on the table beside the woman's thimble. Then he flew gently round the bed, fanning the boy's forehead with his wings. How cool I feel, said the boy. I must be getting better. And he sank into a delicious slumber. Then the swallow flew back to the happy prince and told him what he had done. It is curious, he remarked, but I feel quite warm now, although it is so cold. That is because you have done a good action, said the prince. And the little swallow began to think, and then he fell asleep. Thinking always made him sleepy. When day broke, he flew down to the river and had a bath. What a remarkable phenomenon, said the professor of ornithology as he was passing over the bridge. A swallow in winter. And he wrote a long letter about it to the local newspaper. Everyone quoted it. It was full of so many words that they could not understand. Tonight I go to Egypt, said the swallow. And he was in high spirits at the prospect. He visited all the public monuments and sat a long time on top of the church steeple. Wherever he went, the sparrows chirruped and said to each other, what a distinguished stranger. So he enjoyed himself very much. When the moon rose, he flew back to the happy prince. Have you any commissions for Egypt? He cried. I am just starting. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me one night longer? I am waited for in Egypt, answered the swallow. Tomorrow, my friends will fly up to the second cataract. The river horse couches there among the bulrushes, and on a great granite throne sits the god Memnon. All night long, he watches the stars, and when the morning star shines, he utters one cry of joy, and then he is silent. At noon, the yellow lions come down to the water's edge to drink. They have eyes like green barrels, and their roar is louder than the roar of the cataract. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Far away across the city, I see a young man in a garret. He is leaning over a desk covered with papers, and in a tumbler by his side, there is a bunch of withered violets. 
His hair is brown and crisp, and his lips are as red as a pomegranate. He has large and dreamy eyes. He is trying to finish a play for the director of the theatre, but he is too cold to write anymore. There is no fire in the grate, and hunger has made him faint. I will wait with you one night longer, said the swallow, who really had a good heart. Shall I take him another ruby? Alas, I have no ruby now, said the prince. My eyes are all that I have left. They are made of rare sapphires which were brought out of India a thousand years ago. Pluck out one of them and take it to him. He will sell it to the jeweler and buy food and firewood and finish his play. Dear prince, said the swallow, I cannot do that. And he began to weep. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Do as I command you. So the swallow plucked out the prince's eye and flew away to the student's garret. It was easy enough to get in as there was a hole in the roof. Through this he darted and came into the room. The young man had his head buried in his hands so he did not hear the flutter of the bird's wings. And when he looked up he found the beautiful sapphire laying on the withered violets. I am beginning to be appreciated, he cried. This is from some great admirer. Now I can finish my play. And he looked quite happy. The next day, the swallow flew down to the harbor. He sat on the mast of a large vessel and watched the sailors hauling big chests out of the hold with ropes. Heave ahoy, they shouted as each chest came up. I am going to Egypt, cried the swallow, but nobody minded. And when the moon rose, he flew back to the happy prince. I am come to bid you goodbye, he cried. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me one night longer? It is winter, answered the swallow, and the chill snow will soon be here. In Egypt, the sun is warm on the green palm trees, and the crocodiles lie in the mud and look lazily about them. My companions are building a nest in the temple of Baalbek, and the pink and white doves are watching them and cooing to each other. <sighs> Dear Prince, I must leave you, but I will never forget you. And next spring, I will bring you back two beautiful jewels in place of those you have given away. The ruby shall be redder than a red rose, and the sapphire shall be as blue as the great sea. In the square below, said the happy prince, there stands a little match girl. She has let her matches fall in the gutter and they're all spoiled. Her father will beat her if she does not bring home some money and she is crying. She has no shoes or stockings and her little head is bare. Pluck out my other eye and give it to her and her father will not beat her. I will stay with you one night longer, said the swallow, but I cannot pluck out your eye. You would be quite blind then. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Do as I command you. So he plucked out the prince's other eye and darted down with it. He swooped past the match girl and slipped the jewel into the palm of her hand. What a lovely bit of glass, cried the little girl, and she ran home laughing. Then the swallow came back to the prince. You are blind now, he said. So I will stay with you always. No, 
Little swallow, said the poor prince, you must go away to Egypt. I will stay with you always, said the swallow, and he slept at the prince's feet. All the next day, he sat on the prince's shoulder and told him stories of what he had seen in strange lands. He told him of the red ibises, who stand in long rows on the banks of the Nile and catch gold fish in their beaks. Of the sphinx, who is as old as the world itself and lives in the desert and knows everything. Of the merchants, who walk slowly by the side of their camels and carry amber beads in their hands. Of the king of the mountains of the moon, who is as black as ebony and worships a large crystal of the great green snake that sleeps in a palm tree and has 20 priests to feed it with honey cakes, and of the pygmies who sail over a big lake on large flat leaves and are always at war with the butterflies. Dear little swallow, said the prince, you tell me of marvelous things, but more marvelous than anything is the suffering of men and of women. There is no mystery so great as misery. Fly over my city, little swallow, and tell me what you see there. So the swallow flew over the great city and saw the rich making merry in their beautiful houses while the beggars were sitting at the gates. He flew into dark lanes and saw the white faces of starving children looking out listlessly at the black streets. Under the archway of a bridge, two little boys were lying in one another's arms to try and keep themselves warm. How hungry we are, they said. You must not lie here, shouted the watchman, and they wandered out into the rain. Then he flew back and told the prince what he had seen. I am covered with fine gold, said the prince. You must take it off, leaf by leaf, and give it to my poor. The living always think that gold can make them happy. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold, the swallow picked off, till the happy prince looked quite dull and gray. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold he brought to the poor, and the children's faces grew rosier, and they laughed and played games in the street. We have bread now, they cried. Then the snow came, and after the snow came the frost. The streets looked as if they were made of silver, they were so bright and glistening. Long icicles like crystal daggers hung from the eaves of the house. Everybody went about in furs, and the little boys wore scarlet caps and skated on the ice. The poor little swallow grew colder and colder, but he would not leave the prince. He loved him too well. He picked up crumbs outside the baker's door when the baker was not looking and tried to keep himself warm by flapping his wings. But at last, he knew that he was going to die. He had just strength to fly up to the prince's shoulder once more. Goodbye, dear prince, he murmured. Will you let me kiss your hand? I am glad that you are going to Egypt at last, little swallow said the prince. You have stayed too long here, but you must kiss me on the lips, for I love you. It is not to Egypt that I am going, said the swallow. I am going to the house of death. Death is the brother of sleep, is he not? And he kissed the happy prince on the lips 
and fell down dead at his feet. At that moment, a curious crack sounded inside the statue as if something had broken. The fact is that the leaden heart had snapped right in two. It certainly was a dreadfully hard frost. Early the next morning, the mayor was walking in the square below in company with the town councillors. As they passed the column, he looked up at the statue. Dear me, how shabby the happy prince looks, he said. How shabby indeed, cried the town councillors, who always agreed with the mayor, and they went up to look at it. The ruby has fallen out of his sword. His eyes are gone, and he is golden no longer, said the mayor, in fact. He is little better than a beggar. Little better than a beggar, said the town councillors. And here is actually a dead bird at his feet, continued the mayor. We must really issue a proclamation that birds are not to be allowed to die here and the town clerk made a note of the suggestion. So they pulled down the statue of the happy prince. As he is no longer beautiful, he is no longer useful, said the art professor at the university. Then they melted the statue in a furnace, and the mayor held a meeting of the corporation to decide what was to be done with the metal. We must have another statue, of course, he said, and it shall be a statue of myself. Of myself, said each of the town councillors, and they quarrelled. When I last heard of them, they were quarrelling still. What a strange thing, said the overseer of the workmen at the foundry. This broken lead heart will not melt in the furnace. We must throw it away. So they threw it on a dust heap where the dead swallow was also lying. Bring me the two most precious things in the city, said God to one of his angels and the angel brought him the leaden heart and the dead bird. You have rightly chosen, said God, for in my garden of paradise this little bird shall sing forevermore, and in my city of gold the happy prince shall praise me. story of the not-so-happy prince who, he tells us when he was alive and had a human heart, did not know what tears were, for he lived in the palace of Sanssouci, where sorrow is not allowed to enter. But now that his heart is made of lead, he cannot choose but to weep. When we read it next to Oscar Wilde's prison text De Profundis, written nine years later, the irony seems both tragic and personal. These are stories which not only appeal, as Oscar himself said, to people with childlike minds from 18 to 80. For Oscar's grandson, Merlin Holland, the power of these stories is their ability to reach and touch both children and adults. They are stories which, if they're read aloud to children, will appeal not only to the reader, because there is another dimension, there's a sophisticated, ironic, even subversive dimension to the way they're written, which would appeal to the adult. And of course, the subversiveness 
just take the beginning of The Happy Prince when the children say how beautiful The Happy Prince is. He's like an angel, and the mathematical master says, how do you know you've never seen an angel? Oh, yes, we have in our dreams, they say. And the mathematical master frowns because he disapproves of children dreaming. What a wonderful thing for children to hear because the children come out on top, of course, and it's the anti-authoritarian attitude of the children. They trump the mathematical master's reality. That not only appeals, I think, to the romantic in all of us, but it also appeals to the children who are being read the stories. So I think that's probably one of the great things about them is that they have this dual aspect to them, that they appeal both to the reader and the read to. When we met up with Merlin Holland in London, he brought his own little red hardback edition of the stories, the one his father, Vivian Holland, Wilde's youngest son, had bought to read him when he was born. The book was published in 1946, so it was published a year after I was born. It has these line illustrations in it by Charles Robinson, and the paper is not terribly good and the binding is not terribly good and obviously it was an immediate post-war effort by a publisher. And this is the book that I remember both reading myself and being read to from when I was a very young child. Although his father read the stories to him, Merlin grew up knowing little of his connection to Oscar Wilde. Well, he never really talked to me about his father at all. And... I suppose, since my father died when I was 21, it's always been a great, and it's been a source of infinite regret to me that I, I never did ask him. But I know that I was read the, the fairy stories when I, I was very young. I've still got, I fished it out of the bookshelf this morning and brought it over. And it brought back extraordinary memories to me. It must be the first time I've opened it for probably 40 or 50 years. And just the illustrations in it brought back in a great wave my childhood suddenly like that. And it was quite a sort of emotional thing. So I know that I, I both read them myself and when I was younger they were read to me. As a writer, Oscar Wilde is often more quoted or misquoted than read. Well, he's the slippery character. So a lot of different areas have investments in Wilde. There's obviously Wilde the Wit, Wilde the One-Liner, Wilde the Epigrammatist, a very popular image of Oscar Wilde. That's everywhere. You can see, you know, quoted on mugs, on T-shirts. That's Jarlath Killeen at Trinity College Dublin's Oscar Wilde Centre. Then there's Wilde, who appeals as a kind of proto-celebrity of the late Victorian period. It's a kind of beginning of modern celebrity, and you can see that working through in, in the appeal of Wilde for people like David Bowie and the New Romantics as well in the 1980s, and Wilde as, as a kind of celebrity figure. Then there's Wilde and the Irish Wilde. Is there an Irish Wilde? What does it mean to say that Wilde was an Irish man, his Irishness, in a sense, forgotten for quite a long period in the 20th century? And then there's the Oscar Wilde as kind of a, a martyr to the, the homosexual cause, I suppose, and his appeal for gay and queer culture in general. So who was Oscar Wilde? 
He was born in Dublin in 1854 and he had two very distinguished parents. And I think that's important because he was a particular type of Irish man. He was born into what we call the Protestant ascendancy. His father was a pioneering Ioneer surgeon who set up the Ioneer Hospital in Dublin, who was also very interested in Irish antiquities, the relics of the Gaelic past that were scattered throughout the countryside. And he was also a scientist. That's Anne Markey, a lecturer at Trinity College Dublin. And his mother, Lady Jane Wilde, was during her youth an Irish nationalist who was a poet who wrote poetry under the pen name Speranza for the newspaper of the Young Irelanders. And she was very interested in Irish culture and in Irish folk tradition. After marriage, she kind of devoted herself to her family and Oscar was the second of her three children. He had an older brother called Willie, with whom he had a kind of a troubled relationship, and a younger sister called Isola, who died, unfortunately, when she was 10. There, it was very much a marriage of equals, really. They were both very strong characters and very famous. They would have been celebrities in the Dublin of their day. Eleanor Fitzsimons. They would have had great wealth. They lived in a good house, but they moved to a really opulent house, which was one Marion Square, still there. They would have had servants and lots of very distinguished guests calling around all the time. His mother was a great entertainer. She ran these salons, effectively, where she invited the, the absolute leading lights of Dublin, very much the intellectual leading lights, because she, as a very clever woman herself, liked to surround herself with very bright people. And it was a very cultured house. They had visits from play Playwrights like Dion Boucicault, writers like Thomas Carlyle, mathematicians. It was really a hub of intellectual life. By 1888, when this collection was published, Wilde was already writing plays, poetry and fiction. He was the editor of a women's literary magazine and an established figure in London society. So why did he write these children's stories? I think that he wrote them to make money. But then we all do things because we need to make money and that doesn't devalue them in any particular way. I do prefer to call them fairy tales rather than children's stories because they work on a number of levels. But I think that these were written as fairy tales rather than as children's stories because they were published by a publishing house which was not connected with the publishing of fiction for children. When Wilde was writing to the publisher, David Nutt, he suggested advertising in places that weren't associated with the advertising of children's stories. When he was writing to his own friends and acquaintances, one of whom was Florence Stoker, who was his first girlfriend, he offered the stories to her rather than to her child. First of all, I suppose you have to question as to whether he wrote them for children or not. And in fact, he disputed that himself, where he would sometimes describe them as trivial and for children. Other times he would describe them very much as allegories and, and parables for an adult audience or for adults that had retained a childlike simplicity. In terms of their Irishness, I think that there are elements, certainly, of Irishness about them. And he was very much steeped in Irish folklore because his parents took a huge interest in Irish folklore. So he definitely had that element to him. But also there are lots of other influences influences there as well. Very much modern day influences what he was seeing around him in London in terms of poverty and deprivation plays very heavily into the Happy Prince, the prince who looks down over his city and sees the terrible suffering of the people. Even in terms of the Match Girls strike in Bryant and May, the seamstresses who worked their fingers to the bone and couldn't make a living and it just wasn't economically viable. 
I suspect that Wilde saw that the fairy tale was a genre that had at least some politically dangerous potentialities about it and decided that he would be using it as a way to talk to children, yes, but you, through children you, you do speak to parents. If parents are reading stories to their children in the nursery, they're getting what's in the fairy tale as well. And some critics see him as part of the transformation of the fairy tale from a safe into a much more dangerous genre. George MacDonald is another writer, a socialist, a Christian socialist, who uses the fairy tales to address politics quite directly. And perhaps Wilde is doing something similar in these fairy tales. But I think that the primary motivation comes from the fact that he's, he's become a father by the time he's writing them. It is said that Oscar Wilde wrote these stories for his children. Well, if you look at it logically, they were published in 1888, when my father was 11 months old, and my uncle was only just over two. So the likelihood of them actually understanding the stories was pretty small. My father, in his book, which he wrote back in 1954, said that Oscar adapted the written stories later suitably for young minds. So I think the idea, romantic though it is, and a lovely idea that they were written specially for his children, I'm afraid is probably not entirely true. I think he had his children in mind, certainly, but they weren't written in that form specially for the children. In a sense, it must have been even more exciting for them because every time he told them the stories, there would probably be a slight difference, as there always was when he recounted these things. But while these fairy tales were not written for his own infant sons, becoming a father changed and inspired Oscar. Oh, he just seems to have been the most delightful father. The best account probably is given in Vivian Holland's memoirs. And he just talks about a father who got down on the floor and played rough and tumble games with his sons, who never was shy of, of coming in and, and fixing their toys or obviously telling them stories at night. He'd sit on their beds and tell them the most wonderful stories, stories that he just made up on the spot, stories that were influenced by others like Hans Christian Andersen, stories and legends from the West of Ireland talking about deep ponds full of melancholy carp. Beautiful stories. Merlin Holland sees the stories as a watershed in Oscar's life. When he's moving from being married, Oscar Wilde, with 2.4 children, the editor of a woman's magazine, The Woman's World, a reviewer, he's teetering on the edge of extreme responsibility and I think it worried him. He wrote a very interesting essay around that time, shortly after The Happy Prince and Other Tales was published, called The Decay of Lying. And it was a clarion call, really, to encourage writers, and particularly himself, as sort of, it becomes a manifesto almost for Dorian Gray, to indulge in the imagination rather than what was becoming then popular, and certainly in France, the realistic or even naturalistic novel. And there comes a point at the end, I think, of these stories that you see a big, big change in Oscar Wilde. Now, it may have been because he'd had his first same-sex relationship with a man who we suspect was his great, great friend and afterwards his literary executor, Robert Ross. It may have been the breakdown in relationship in the marriage, although this marriage was much stronger even after 1890 than most people believe. I think it's probable that at some level Oscar Wilde was always attracted to beautiful young men, but he certainly fell in love with his wife 
And they had a very conventional marriage. Within a short time, Constance was pregnant with her first child, Cyril. And two years after that, she had a second son, Vivian. So certainly, if you were to read his letters to her and to his friends at the time and diary entries by people who spoke to him about his engagement, he was over the moon. He was besotted. He was delighted with this beautiful young wife. I suppose what occurred to Oscar Wilde around the late 1880s, particularly when he was editing The Woman's World, was that he really felt that he wanted to make his way in the world and make his living from his own writing and his own ideas. And he had actually always said that he didn't think that he had it in him to write a novel that he really wasn't interested. And it's funny because his works lengthened as he went on, really. He started off very much as a poet. He identified as a poet. He saw himself as a poet, like his mother was a poet. And he said that. Then he started writing stories, which were based very much on the stories that he told. But he did, of course, then turn his hand to writing a novel. And he wrote Dorian Gray, which was serialised in Lippincott's magazine and which caused a scandal and was widely reviewed with very mixed reviews. Some people thinking it was dreadful and awful and scandalous and others recognising that it was a great work. And Merlin, when you were little and your father was reading these stories to you, did you have a favourite yourself? Uh, no, I didn't, I think is the answer to that. And I think as I've got older and more cynical, <laughs> I've become The Happy Prince was my favourite when I was young. It was a very sad story with an upbeat ending. And it's something which I've always wondered about, the order in which Oscar might have written them. And if you think about The Happy Prince and The Selfish Giant, they're both of them, and Oscar would detest the idea that they had a moral to them, but they have a very strong Christian moral. There's a sort of sense of Christian redemption for doing good at the end, and the giant gets taken off to paradise, and the broken lead heart of the statue and the dead swallow get taken off to paradise because they've both done good things. But when you get to the other stories, there is a sense that Oscar has moved on from this Christian redemptive idea and he's halfway to what later comes, which is, of course, the picture of Dorian Gray, which is a very dark story indeed. As Merlin Holland mentioned, The Happy Prince, like a later story, The Selfish Giant, share Christian symbolism with Wilde's prison writings in De Profundus. The Happy Prince is a Christ-like figure stripping himself for others, while the selfish giant is promised the garden of paradise by the Christ-like special child who carries the wounds of love. I suppose the relationship between the Happy Prince and De Profundus is that in the Happy Prince, the two go to heaven, they're rewarded in heaven, but actually, Wilde may be suggesting that heaven is just another part of another story. In De Profundus, he's in hell, he's speaking from the depths, and he's hoping that there will be some form of redemption. But he's not really sure that there is. And maybe it's that doubt, that awful doubt, that links the two of them. I was lucky in that I didn't have to deviate very much from what Oscar Wilde does. I think that... These five stories absolutely work in their own right as individual fairy tales. They each have their own beginning, middle and end. But at the same time, they also function as a body of work. I think that there's a whole question about the nature of beauty, the, the nature of generosity, how we should value things in a material world that, that are there through all of the stories. 
For composer Michael Gallen, this classic and beloved tale, The Happy Prince, became a choral piece of music he's called A Hidden Delight. And the composition was a journey for him that started, as the story does, high above the city. Um, when I found out that I was going to be composing this piece, I was in Holland working on another project. And on one of my days off, I went on a day trip to Delft. Obviously it's very flat everywhere in Holland, they've got a very high church tower and I went up to the top of the church tower and as it happened on that day there was a carnival going on in the city. Several marching bands began playing in different districts of the city and then marching towards the courtyard of the cathedral which is at the very centre. So it had this incredible effect of when I walked around the spire I would hear different music. Just by turning your head a tiny bit you would switch into a different piece of music. It sort of gave this strange kind of Doppler effect and at the very beginning of The Happy Prince there's this image of the statue high above the city and how all of these images float up to the prince to his pedestal. And so sonically that just started to make sense to me that the first movement would all be about floating, it would be about sounds rising up out of a city and different images and how you would have the Doppler effect between city sounds and the sound of birds and the sound of children. And then the other thing that kind of just happened by magic was that at the end of that day they were just closing the cathedral and at the base of the spire some workmen came in and started working and there was this effect where their voices would kind of undulate up through the cavity of the spire and it was incredible I kind of tried to make a recording of it it didn't make any sense but it just stayed in my head the entire time so I really really wanted to begin the piece with these floating voices, these voices that kind of gradually float up like a cloud and that's what you hear the children's choir doing at the beginning of A Hidden Delight. So the name A Hidden Delight comes mainly from the second part of the story which is where the swallow is trying to decide whether to fly south or not and he describes the lands that he's going to fly to and all the riches and I kind of was led towards poetry from that region and Rumi. There's this line, you know, I was a hidden treasure and I loved to be known, so I made the worlds visible and invisible. And I thought that it would be beautiful that you'd have this cityscape and then from out of that, from these huge kind of Doppler sounds, you would then have the simplicity of a children's choir reveal itself. So a hidden delight was both that reference to, I guess, the Middle East that's in the story, and then also this idea that in the piece as a whole, the children's choir are that hidden delight.
hidden delight from Michael Gallon's Wild Stories Suite, performed there by the RTE National Concert Orchestra and RTE Cornanogue, led by choral director Mary Amond O'Brien, with soloists Rachel Croash and Evan Lawrence, and conducted by Gavin Maloney. We'll hear more of Michael's work in the next episode of Wild Stories when we're exploring Oscar Wilde's dark and unsettling tale, The Devoted Friend. A story of betrayal, greed and exploitation as the innocent, naive Hans meets the ruthless Miller. Love is all very well in its way, but friendship is much higher. Indeed, I know of nothing in the world that is either nobler or rarer than a devoted friendship. If you want to find out more about the series, you can hear podcasts and see the beautiful artwork by Felicity Clear with Michael's music on wildstories.ie. We've also added the text versions of each story so you can read, listen and enjoy this wild journey. Our thanks to our commentators Merlin Holland, Eleanor Fitzsimons, Anne Markey and Jarleth Killeen. Wild Stories is an Athena Media production for RTE Lyric FM, made with the funding support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and the TV licence fee. And you can share your thoughts on Twitter and Facebook with the at Wild Stories social media accounts, or use the hashtag Wild Stories. I'm Robert Sheehan. Thanks for listening.